are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. We're having Michael Hayden from the Southern Poverty Law Center back on. Since in the few months from his last appearance, we have a whole bunch of very disturbing leaks from Stephen Miller and the White House that needs attention. I'm excited to be here. So what exactly is VDARE for those of us who don't know what it is? Sure. So the name comes from Virginia Dare. I don't know if you're familiar with Virginia Dare, but that's the I'm f- not. Yeah, that's the first English child like born in the new world. Okay, in the United States. So this is like, you know, this image of this, you know, founding white settler, right? And the idea is that this is the country and immigration has um, destroyed that basic dream of, like, you know, the country that was founded in the United States. And Peter Brimlow is the editor of VDARE, and we list him as a white nationalist on our website. You should read about him there. But Brimlow um, once proposed in one of his books a final chapter— which would be like a, like this dystopian version, apparently, of, you know, where there's another Virginia Dare who is like the last white child in the United States as like, you know, the demographics change so much. So that gives you an idea of the type of stuff that's there. They publish people like Michelle Malkin and Ann Coulter and people who are more readily recognized as uh, white supremacists. So in one of the emails, I guess it came from 2015. So TPS means Temporary Protected Status. Right. So he and McHugh, I guess, converse about the potential of giving TPS status to Mexican immigrants if there's a hurricane. Yeah, this is around the time of Hurricane Patricia. And like I know a lot of people, I mean, there's so many hurricanes these days that we kind of tune out. But, you know, McHugh was kind of handling it in, uh, in the, just a typical daily story, clickbait type of way where it's like every day you go into your work and you want to put a headline out there about the stuff that people are talking about, the thing that's trending. So, you know, it's Breitbart. They have a kind of a, you know, a racist overtones to their publication quite frequently. And in this case, it's sort of like, well, what's the hook for a trending topic? Uh, and the trending topic is Hurricane Patricia. And Miller sees that as an opportunity to say, like, TPS is everything. Everyone's going to get temporary protective status. Because at that time, based upon the weather reports and stuff like that, it appeared as if Patricia was going to devastate Mexico. And... You know, I think it, there were eight eight people died or something like that in that storm. It was not excessive. I, I don't quote me on that. That's the that's something I read I think months ago when I was preparing this story. But the point is that he views this as not as like oh no, oh no, you know, a, a storm that could kill a lot of people. This is like oh no, you know, Mexicans are going to come to the United States to seek refuge for a few months. I mean, it's really. Um, he sees that, again, in terms of demographic replacement. Somebody winds up in the United States, and then they're going to stay there, and then they're going to have children there, and those people are going to build roots in this country, and that leads to, 
losing their country, right, so to speak. So it, it, it's a pretty great idea of Miller's priorities, but it's also a good idea of like the way it affects um, policy. Just more on that in a second. But in terms of policies, he's storm. People could die. He shares a link from a white nationalist website. And his concern, again, is not regular people who could theoretically lose their life in, in, in a horrific storm, a Category 5 storm or whatever. And his concern is not about their safety. His concern, first and foremost, is immigration and that they might come into the United States for six months where their homes are being rebuilt. It's tr- quite shocking. Temporary protective status was launched in, in 19... 19- 1990, maybe? Don't quote me on that. But during the George H.W. Bush administration. So why is that important? It's because during the Trump era, they have significantly reduced the number of people who get temporary protective status after these storms. May I make a quick comment? Yes. So the the temporary protection status, like from El Salvador, came from the George W. Bush administration because of all the death squads they funded. Um, But Trump in 2018, I believe he rescinded the temporary protection status for the El Salvador immigrants, right? Yeah, I believe so. That um, I'd have to uh, fact check uh, the El, El Salvador. I the one the one I I mean I definitely know the big one is Bahamas, right? We had a huge storm in the Bahamas um, oh, recently, yeah. and people were you know people were devastated by that. And Trump said you know these are not all you know did his usual thing where again paraphrasing is not exactly but they're drug dealers. There's all kinds of bad people that could come, and you know the Bahamas is ninety percent black. So here we have a situation where, you know, we know that Miller gets his views on temporary protective status from white nationalist sources, and he enacts policy that is that we can see it uh, appears to find its foundation in those sites. So this is like horrific, <laughs> horrific situation. So I, uh, it is horrific. So the next email is where he recommends the Camp of the States. Yes. Camp of the Saints. That would have been the top line, actually. But um, I was concerned they might tune it out. Um, People might tune it out a little bit, uh, largely because Steve Bannon also got in trouble for Camp of the Saints. So I just want to make sure people didn't blend those things together. I thought the VDR stuff, because it was so clear, I put it up um, first. It was so clear the way that influenced policy. Wait, can we mention something? Um, Yeah. So in the email, she links to a tweet by this never Trump conservative David Trump. <laughs> so, what does that uh, tell you about of, the, of, of that story? Okay, so what should liberals think about, no, like, understand about never, never Trump conservatives? Just- <laughs> <laughs> well, I will not. You know, I'm not going to pine. You know, too deeply on it, but I will say that it's almost delicious to see. David Frum has been really hi-hatting on, uh, you know, Trump on all these things. You know, he was, you know, he was really invested in this whole, you know, uh, Muslim invasion of Europe narrative that was happening around the time that there were 
to be fair, truly horrific terror attacks happening on a regular basis. Um, you remember, like, the 2014, 2015, 2016, whatever, right? I mean, there was, uh, like, the, the truck attack um, and whatever. He was really promoting that narrative at that time, and it's just funny to see that from tweet wind up in a in dialogue that ultimately leads to something about Camp of the Saints, which is, we should tell the listeners, Camp of the Saints is a book by Jean Russ Bale, uh, and uh, it is uh, in 1973, something like that, I think it was was written. And it is this dystopian novel. I think in an explanation story, I, I compared it to, like, you know, in the way that uh, 1984 might be about uh, The BBC? Control. Oh, I actually wrote an article last week yeah, about 1984, so it's about the BBC. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Uh, well, whatever. But the point is that it is, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, Animal Farm or whatever. Like a dystopian, like a, a you know, a cautionary tale. Robocop about, pri- you know, public-private partnership, you know. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. Point is that the dystopia in Camp of the Saints is about non-white immigration and essentially— Indians. Well, yes, of course. I, Me? Like, it's, yeah, it's it's close to home then. So there's this guy called the Turd Eater who leads this um, these flotilla of refugees into and France. He's, why is he called Turd Eater? Because he literally eats <laughs> which yeah, is um, like pretty such, racist. That's so crude. Uh, come on. We kind would, of racist. Indians would definitely put like some kind of curry. We, we'd definitely put oh. – sorry. <laughs> but also, you know, the other thing about, I mean, of course, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's barbaric stereotypes of Indians. It's exactly. not, it's not like, it's so grotesque and so horrific that yeah, it, and the idea it cannot is, be defended. The idea is they come and rape French women. Well, it doesn't start really with that. It's, it's, the, the cautionary tale is like basically like the, the, everybody comes into France and the idea is France is well-meaning and just letting in these refugees into their country, right? And then more and more come and then what, it becomes out of control and then there is the white you know, female character who's, like, pure and all these other, you know, like, the way she's described. And then she's, like, raped to death by refugees and, like, the whole country, you know, turns brown and eventually. And it's actually an absolutely stupid book that is written so poorly that is you could only, in my opinion, be interested in if you're interested in this kind of racial fetish stuff, you know. The irony of all this is that it's kind of like reality turned around because— What do you mean by that? Well, like, French troops still occupy Africa, and there have been, like, at least 100 cases of them, like, raping Africa. Like, there's a case where a French troop, like, basically raped an African child for cookies. So it's actually, like, the white person is coming to Africa and doing the rape. Like, it's— Reality is flipped. <laughs> right, right. It's it. it you know, I, I think you know. I'm not a um, you know a true student of psychology. As like I'm just an amateur reader or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think that like a lot of the colonial, you know, the history of colonialism. You know, it, there is a feeling of inversion there. That this that like I think going on um, with with many of these kind of fantasies and fears uh, that were, were just sort of like what was done for so long, you know, get, is is now being done to us. It's like, oh, my God. Anyway, um, the point is that Miller, Miller shared Camp of the Saints, uh, you know, and 
he pushed for Breitbart to write a story. He pushed for Breitbart to write a story that compared Pope Francis's rhetoric about refugees, which was welcoming uh, to Camp of the Saints. And, and sure enough, he makes this recommendation on September 6th. Uh, McHugh doesn't respond to the email, but ultimately Julia Hahn does. And Julia Hahn actually works in the White House now, and she was an editor at Breitbart at that time, and they actually run a story doing that exact thing. So, so Camp of the Saints ultimately gets amplified to a huge audience, largely because we can at least speculate Miller most likely was the person pushing that story from behind the scenes. Okay, so what is the American Renaissance? Sure. Well, American Renaissance is arguably the most uh, prominent white supremacist publication in the United States, founded by Jared Taylor, uh, as a Yale grad. And, uh, you know, Taylor is extremely deep into the sort of black-on-white crime uh, paranoia, you know, and uh, Latino on white crime. I mean, that's his kind of, that's his bread and butter. Um, that and a lot of uh, debunked race science uh, theories and stuff like that is a, a true kind of racial fetishist, in my opinion. And um, largely considered untouchable in polite discourse. Uh, so Miller calls Katie McHugh, according to her, after they have a brief discussion about an article that was in National Review. And so they have this conversation about National Review, and there are other people on the thread who are Breitbart employees, I think including Steve Bannon. And then Miller removes them from the thread and then says, can I speak to you privately and share some like FBI crime statistics uh, related to race to her. And McHugh says that that private conversation was Miller telling her to aggregate from American Renaissance. And we, you know, have every reason to believe her because, one, um, she just told me that he said that and I found the conversation in question after, you know, hours and hours of research. Um, I found the email conversation. She, McHugh didn't present it to me. That's one thing. And then, two, we also found a follow-up conversation. This is like in the third or fourth time going through the emails um, in which he appears to refer to the exact same conversation. So everything McHugh said was checked out and was backed up by the emails. And ultimately, if we take this as true and, you know, McHugh's story, and we absolutely should, the basic, you know, in my opinion, we absolutely should because I mean, she's, I, 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 everything she said is checked out. The um, Miller knew that American Renaissance was taboo enough that he did not want other people on the thread and wanted to speak to McHugh privately about it, right? So he knew he was doing something bad. This one, I, I could not stop. I can, I, I, it just made me laugh out loud. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read the title for you, and you can explain the context. A Breitbart article, Amazon takes down Confederate flag and continues to sell communist merchandise. <laughs> Well, well, essentially, what that is, like, I mean, it's like if you remember. Uh, so, I, so I was actually in India at the time the Dylan Roof stuff happened, and was not covering this, this beat. But Dylan Roof murdered nine black churchgoers. I mean, the most, you know, it's the most one of the most horrific crimes of the of of last decade. Um, in 2015, uh, it happened. Um, just horrible. 
uh, and it led to some positive movement on removing Confederate symbols, if you recall, right? So they um, removed Confederate symbols from for, yeah, after a few days, I believe it was like June 17th was around the day of, of Roof's terror attack. And then I think like on the, around the 23rd of June, if I recall, again, I'm going from memory, is when Walmart and other online retailers agreed to remove Confederate flags uh, or Confederate symbols from their stores. Now, they, they still exist. You can still get Confederate murders and dice from Amazon. I know because I looked while I was doing this. But you know, it's significantly reduced. It's not like, you know, the, it seems like it's in the less like regulated parts of it. So you're not going to get it like Amazon Prime or whatever. So there's that. And essentially, the, the takeaway here is that Miller saw this happening and this narrative kind of unfolding about how it's time to get rid of Confederate symbols. And he was so angered by it that he just felt obligated to try to shift the news cycle back Right. And so what he focused on instead was getting Breitbart to write a story which implicated Amazon for selling communist merchandise. Right. To try to keep the, you know, so people could buy a hammer and sickle. He's like, what about the deaths, you know, created by Stalin and all these other things? So. So, okay, whatever. Let's say you agree with him. Hold on. Just pause it for one minute. And this, I think, is really crucial. We had. Nine people murdered in the church who welcomed in Dylan Roof, you know, to do, you know, into that church. It was the most brutal, grotesque uh, thing. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it really pains the heart, you know. And, and Stephen Miller, in the immediate aftermath of that, is more upset by, by, the, by this, you know, is more upset by the fact that people are reacting, you know, against it than, than anything else. And is also... You know, it's just like wants to create this counter narrative. I mean, that's just a real, you know, I mean, it's a real, it's really indicates his priorities. And it's one of those instances where you can under, you know, you can get an idea of just like how he feels about, you know, just people of color in a broad sense. Almost the same way you'd feel about a table or something like. It's, yeah, I mean, the emotions that were kind of opened up after that roof murders. I mean, I mean, this is like really serious. Any person with a conscience. It's like, I mean, can you imagine trying to flip a narrative, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the, you know, ISIS's uh, nightclub attack in Paris or something like that? I mean, the death toll is much higher there. That's not what we're talking about. But something that's just so emotional where everybody, all these young people were, were just brutally murdered by ISIS and whatever. And like, you know, in the immediate aftermath of that, when all the coverage is hovering around it or whatever, like you're trying to flip that thing. I mean, it's just, it's so callous and, and you know, in my opinion and, and you know, I can't even, I, I can't even go there to not have compassion for, for human beings in the immediate aftermath of something so horrible. horrible. So it, that's where I have my theory where he doesn't really, um, Think of a lot of people who are of different races as human beings. Well, I mean, that is my takeaway from it where, you know, and it's, you know, I'm glad you you said that, but it's, you know, you just see some of the stuff that's happening in the border right now 
where you have like four months old. So four month old is that correct? I believe yeah, so. yeah, they're it is like four month old. yeah, Jesus Christ, where the, where they're being like torn away from their mothers and stuff like that. And it's like you have like how can you get into a place where that is acceptable to you? Where and what way? In what way is that acceptable to you? That that you can live without wanting to fix that, having the power to. Um, having more power than than you know almost anyone in the country, and not being not 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 wanting to use it to help those mothers and help those babies. Um, He's you, using it to create that trauma for the mothers and babies, which makes it worse. Absolutely. So so we're, we're, at minimum, he doesn't. You know, you can see how you know having those racist views would make it easier to accept this happening, and. Another way of looking at it would be, you know, if he wants to exact it on purpose because he believes um, that people of color are not, you know, the same species as as he is. Okay, so can we talk about the Immigration Act of 1924? That's a good, that's a really good one. Okay, so like, so Miller talks, you know, in these, in the emails he brings up Calvin Coolidge a bunch of times, and it's actually, a, a, you know, another researcher at SPLC helps me understand this. So Coolidge, like, is not a president we learn a lot about in school, really, um, because he's pretty inconsequential. And is, but when I say he's not consequential, I mean, he is consequential because we're referring to him right now. But, I mean, he was not considered somebody who, you know, had like this, you know, who needs a reassessment, except... Uh, by white nationalists and neo-Nazis who have been writing about him in a positive sense for a very long time. And why is that? It's because in 1924, he signed uh, an immigration act which restricted people from certain races from entering the country. And it was based in eugenics. And it happened in 1924. And why do I reiterate that it happened during 1924? Because that's almost 100 years ago, right? It's a very long time ago. I mean, it's really turning back the clock. I mean, to base your immigration policies in eugenics and stuff like that uh, is not something we want to bring back. But it's 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 also connected to Hart Seller, right? It's 1965. We removed those racial quota laws. Hold on. Um, yeah, go but ahead. Something happened in the 1930s that's connected to the 1924 immigration laws. We're talking about the rise of Hitler? Yeah, and yes. how he praised this exact law. Yeah, yeah, he did praise it, um, which is, again, like a really disturbing element to these emails. It's just we're going back to this time where, I mean, for many people, World War II was the final word on this, you know, these, this type of, you know, race science bullshit. And it was not the final word for Stephen Miller based upon these emails. And Miller repeatedly mentions this act as a model act, right? Well, I mean, not really. He 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 mentions Coolidge repeatedly. And Coolidge, the sort of the signifier of that is that Coolidge is, you know, signed this law. And I mean, but he talks around the Immigration Act of 1924 because he said he praises Coolidge. He, you know, so, somebody says something, then he'd be like, like Coolidge, who stopped immigration outright. And then there's another time in which I think is really telling where MSNBC runs an article as like today is the start of Immigration Heritage Month or whatever or something like that. I can't remember what it is. Um, some generic holiday. And but Miller says someone should tell them about the heritage of Calvin Coolidge. And I think he refers to 
four decades. So what he's really talking about is the time between the Immigration Act of 1924 and Hart Cellar in 1965. And while the Immigration Act of 1924 was active for those four decades, there were racial quota laws. And then in 1965, uh, Hart Cellar removed them. Actually, my mother came to the United States in 1968 because apparently I just learned this when I was at home. In 1968, that happened, there was apparently they – they the U.S. government had put out something that people who had ties to some area of Sudan and my family my, – my mother's side is Egyptian. And, um, you know, we have uh, some Palestinian and some, you know, Sudanese heritage. And I guess, you know, that was what enabled uh, my mother and her brother and sister to come over uh, to Queens. Anyway, the point is that those racial quota laws were – in place for decades and removed. And there's like, at least from what I know uh, from the far right conspiracy theories, they claim that Democrats, quote unquote, removed them in order to like, I don't know, win elections, which that's the great replacement theory. Um, Okay. So now can we talk about how he is friends with or hangs out with some shocking white nationalist figures? Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I mean, look, we mentioned Vidar early on. Peter Brimlow, who is the editor of Vidar, Miller was part of a contingent that arranged for him to debate Peter Lawfer, who is uh, you know a pro-immigration academic in Duke University, and according to Lawfer spoke to me, he said, yeah, I remember. I remember the whole thing. You know, he was there and it was Stephen Miller and Richard Spencer, who is now, you know, one of the most famous white nationalists in the world, if not the most. He, you know, the two of them at that time uh, were running the conservative union at Duke and they were the ones who set up the debate. And Lawfer actually told me a very funny thing that's not reported in there. It's just said that like Miller and Spencer were, you know, according to him, like grousing and unhappy after the debate because they felt that, you know, Brimlow did not perform as well as they would have liked. Well, because it's a losing debate, but that... <laughs> I actually think I would not be particularly fantastic in a debate setting with them. I mean, but, but the, you know, then again, it's other people may be, you know, more attuned to that. I, I Like I'm, I, you know, like I, if I were... You know, in that situation with somebody like Primlo, it it just be very difficult to even engage in the discussion. You know, I would have I would have too much. You know, it's like this is not something for me to even debate. You know what I mean? A lot of this stuff. Um, that said, I mean, Lawfer is a better sport um, than I would be. I think. So there's two things that we kind of it, it's a little bit of philosophical issue. Hmm. I feel like. Somehow the mainstream media is dropping the ball on the way they cover white nationalists. How could they, if in theory they wanted to improve, how could they improve? The mainstream media and how they cover white nationalists? Yeah, like with the way they cover Richard Spencer. I mean, you can just take the Miller story as an example, right? I mean, like this guy, part of the problem is they're just, you know, I, I really feel they're letting these guys infiltrate deeper and deeper into our culture. I mean, Miller's, I, I, you know, from many rumors that I've heard is, is a source on a lot of stories for liberal publications. And so there, you know, there's a question of, okay, I got these emails. They, they, 
you know, put to bed any questions about whether Miller's an extremist or not. And people writing about it, they're writing around it, for sure. But they're not really digging into his past enough to make this stuff clear. I mean, wh- why had no one interviewed Lawfer since and found out that, for example, that, that Spencer or, um, you know, Spencer Brimlow and Miller were hanging out and eating dinner on the same table? I mean, I think that's something that's very important to people. And I think, I think one, of the, one of the issues is that we, there, there are not enough people of color in newsrooms, right? They're just not. It's, you know, it's, it's heavily in need of, of more diversity, the field. And so you have people who are looking at this perhaps with less urgency, for one thing. And then the other thing is also, I mean, when they do write about it, um, they really fall into the trap of sensationalizing too much. You know, I, we have gotten recently taken steps where we have reduced the number of times, like, we, for instance, where we reference the name of a podcast, reference the name of a person. We try to keep that stuff more and more. We're trying to keep that stuff off of the publication because every time we do it, these people see an influx in recruiting. So they answer your question a long way. They need to be more strategic in trying to eliminate this. But you're not going to get that, I think, from enough, you know, liberal publications, uh, you know, just writing stories because they don't recognize the, the, the nature of the threat. And it may be too late because there will be no newspapers if, you know, you know, when the fascists fully take over, right? Let, let, let's, let we, a scenario, right, where you imagine, like, there really is, like, that white nationalists and neo-Nazis really get their wish and there's a, you know, a second Hitler, right? Like, they, 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 they actually talk about this quite frequently. So they call it the second coming on podcasts and stuff like that. Oh, let's, really? Let, yeah. Well, let's say they, they, they got their wish, right? Let's say they they really, really got that. I mean, you know, you, you could argue that we're really far away from it, whatever. But let's say they got their wish. There's not going to be any New York Times, right? There's not going to be any ABC News after that. Or at least if there is, it's only going to, you know, it's going to, it, their ability to be free and to report is going to be heavily restricted in this in this potential scenario, right, if this were, were to happen. So I think it, behooves journalists to be uh, a lot more aggressive than they are. I think it really starts to to getting people who are passionate and understand this stuff and understand it as an ex- existential threat to life on this planet and, and you know, and life in, in this country right now. Well, yeah, like for me, I don't know if you know much about Pompeo's dominionism. Um, I actually don't, but... Um, but okay, so he yeah. believes that Israel and Iran need to go into a war in order to get Jesus to come back. Uh, He really believes that. Like he talks about how God sent Trump to save Israel from Iran. He said that out loud on video. And then he's talked about how he was going to fight until rapture. So last week. Good, good. Okay. So so last week, um, Pompeo made a statement after they killed the Iranian general, Soleimani. Wow. And the thing about it is that this is how um, some of the mainstream media outlets covered it. So NPR said, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Friday morning that the United States doesn't seek escalation with Iran, as though his statement is worth anything when he literally wants talked about fighting until rapture and apocalypse. So it's, I don't know how to explain it, but they don't evaluate the statements by these like crazy people, white nationalists, dominionists for the truth of the value, but they just say, he says, she says, and they let people assume it's true. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know enough about like the, 
you know, the Pompeo stuff that you're talking about, you know, because I'm, I'm a, you know, kind of a specialist. But, I mean, when going back to the white nationalism stuff, like, yeah, I mean, it, this is – the problem is when you do kind of like the sort of the both sides-ism about everything, fascism is a, a both – as another side, right, in a both sides scenario – is a side that is seeks to absolutely eliminate the other side, right? Like, so this is a you know there is a no middle ground when you're dealing with fascism and when you're dealing with people who have fascist ambitions, when you're dealing with people who are comfortable, you know, with racism as a guiding philosophy, for instance. I mean, there's no middle ground on issues like that, and 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 that's why we really need. I mean, we need more um, Latin American reporters covering immigration because these are, you know, the people who understand um, what is at stake. And, you know, I mean, th this is not a not. I mean, like the, some of the best reporters on this beat are are white, you know. Uh, but I would just say that, like, my experience, my my lived experience um, in a household, you know, where there have been, you know, immigrants. Uh, first generation or whatever, really informs the urgency of these things because you under just understand the essential role it, it plays in, in keeping our society what it is and keeping our society healthy, how important it is for, um, you know, to keep peace um, in the United States. Okay. So can you explain who Jason Richwine is? Sure. Uh, well, so so now that's a, we're getting towards the second story where Rich Wine appears, you know, and he appears in the context of Center for Immigration Studies, uh, who is one, one, you know, one of t from Tanton's uh, network of uh, John Tanton. So. Oh, 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 let me just quickly explain. John Tanton, I'm from Michigan, so uh, sure. he is an ophthalmologist, was an ophthalmologist and a billionaire. Yes. And he was either like an environmentalist who'd converted into a fascist or an eco-fascist. But for at least since the 1970s or the 1980s, he's been trying to get the uh, people to repeal the 14th Amendment with the birthright citizenship. So, That's right. And he passed away last year. Yes. And he died last year. But, yeah, but he his also, legacy is, is... He funds a lot of like anti-immigration sure. think tanks. Sure, sure. I mean, it's like... You know, his influence is is staggering and is really uh, responsible in part for people like Miller being able to rise at a time, you know, in, you know, in the aftermath of, the, you know, a time where we would just, you know, this the type of stuff that would be considered too close to fascism or whatever, you know, still in the cultural memory. Tanton opened a lot of stuff up by, you know, building these these think tanks. Okay, so how is Jason Richwine connected to these think tanks? Sure. So Richwine was fired uh, from the Heritage Foundation in 2013. Now, Heritage Foundation is a conservative, mainstream conservative um, think tank that is, uh, you know, has a lot, you know, is really connected to the Republican Party, et cetera. That he was fired from them for a dissertation that he wrote. What kind of district? Putable university would allow a eugenicist <laughs> dissertation to get a PhD. Yeah, that would be Harvard. Um, he was, you know, so he gets his uh, PhD from Harvard, and it it was, you know, focused um, in part on uh, or like you know in the whole on on race and IQ, and really dealt with kind of eugenics and race science and 
when that came to light, he was fired from the Heritage Foundation and Center for Immigration Studies ultimately picked him up. And Rich Wine is one of Miller's faves inside these emails. I mean, he, he references him at least three times. And the article that Miller seems to like at this time is, is one in which Rich Wine uh, is talking about uh, how, you know, Latin American people uh, are unlikely to ever be upwardly mobile in the United States. So basically just racism. Uh, you know, there's just no other way to for me to depict it. And yeah, I mean, Miller really likes it. <laughs> so Miller, like in the email, he pushes the like Rich Wine's like racist piece yeah. onto McHugh, right? Yeah, he pushes onto McHugh. Like it's referenced in two of the stories we did. Um, I'll use in the in the story we recently did about what he had to say about DACA. Rich Wine makes a cameo there too because he references. So Rupert Murdoch criticizes Trump. You know, on the, during during the election, is is saying that like you know, his ideas about immigration are wrong. Immigrants do not commit more crimes; they commit fewer crimes. Things making with the, the exception less. of Rupert Murdoch, of course. <laughs> so, etc. So he says that, and then Miller responds with, "Oh, actually, no." And when he says actually no, he shares the Rich Wine article, which says, you know, we need to lift the taboo in talking about. Latin American people are predisposed to having, you know, to, to not being able to be, uh, to not being able to be upper, upwardly mobile, which is uh, astonishingly racist and, uh, in my and, opinion. Like, what was the subject he got his PhD in? Do you know? I can't. I actually, at the moment, I can't remember. It's economics. Oh, that's right. It's economics. That's right. Yes, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, good. That's why Borjas is his, um, Borjas, uh, George Borjas is, uh, was his advisor, and obviously Harvard, but is also connected to Center for Immigration Studies, and also wrote a paper on the Mariel Boatlift, which I believe that's what's called, which Miller referenced in a press conference in 2017. So, I mean, it just shows that, like, Miller is really clued into Center for Immigration Studies, who is part of Tanton's network, and it just shows um, the ascendancy of Tanton's network, um, you know, to the highest office in the land. And I would like to re, like make this point about the economics because the economist should probably have kind of understood basic macroeconomics 101, maybe like how the IMF works, how different macroeconomic policies generate poverty and economic policies have a lot to do with generating poverty, but instead they focus on IQ as though they don't want to change economic policy. Right. But there's also like, let me let me take the side of a free market Republican, okay, for a moment. So let's let's just talk about this stuff. I'm 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 putting on my capitalist like top hat right now. I've got a um, you know, I've got a monocle on and I'm you know, I've got my walking stick, you know, and it's got a diamond on it or whatever, and, and here I am now, okay? So how do I feel about immigration? Well, how about DACA brings in like $400 billion or something into the economy, for instance, right? You know, there's a reason why all of these Rupert Murdoch types um, are, were countering Trump, countersignaling Trump at that time. And the reason they were doing it is because immigration, you know, helps fill, keep the economy humming. 
there's like if if you go like um, you know Tyson Chicken or whatever up in uh, you know is it Wisconsin or no somewhere up north. Um, but the point is that that they a lot of the employees there are people who you know it's a difficult job and not many people want to take it and they can't run without you know a lot of low wage um, work immigration work whatever. So for except the cap- they do call ICE once the employees try to unionize. Oh, I have. I'm like, I'm not going to. Um, no, no, uh, it's not an argument. I was just I'm, adding I'm, context. I, no, no, no. True. Yeah, you know, I, I'm. I, my point is that like, my character is like top hat man. Oh, um, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Th- no, that's my point. Is saying like this will actually help the economy, but it's 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 useful to know that people like Miller and the people who are really bought in on this the 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 kind of. Um, the racial aspect of this of of immigration are are going to throw out a lot of economic stuff because they're so focused on this worldview that shows them losing status in the culture. And that's another thing that's really confusing is that they seem to be really over exaggerate little culture war stuff that most people on the left kind of shrug off. Well, it's been useful for them, right? Like culture war has been extremely useful for, you know, driving these racial issues. Like if you remember like a lot of the police shootings, um, there was a spate of them that, that happened from 2014 to 2016. The, co- the, the degree to which that coincided with the rise of the alt-right is not coincidental. There were actually many of the many of the prominent white nationalist voices from that era I'm thinking of Michael Penovich who ran, we talked about last time who ran uh, the you know the right stuff uh, podcast network and whatever became thinking I mean I think he he really kind of rose to prominence talking you know the the opposite side of these police shooting type situations that that arose so frequently where it was sort of like that they would focus on the stuff that the media was neg- – you know, they believe the media was neglecting in those narratives about what danger the person potentially paused and stuff like that. And that, you know, the culture stuff has been really, really good for, you know, with, as they put, put it, um, you know, shifting the Overton window or whatever. Okay. So in your last article, this is the one where it's kind of like, again, they're going into the mirror world. Miller tries to talk about how refugees create terrorism. Yeah. And how do you compare that with who the number one terrorists in America really are? Well, look, um, we have found, you know, I mean, statistically shows that like immigrants commit fewer crimes, you know, are less dangerous um, than the native born population, you know, here. You know, that is the case because, you know, they're it's just culturally um, they have a lot at stake and you know whatever else might be the reason it's a it's, it's, it's particularly sad when it comes to the refugee situation because these are you know people who have already suffered tremendously um, you know wherever they're coming from tend to be whatever reason it, it, we just know that the numbers show that refugees are not a threat to the United States but what is a threat to the United States is this perpetual, hum of nativist, anti-immigrant rhetoric and and ideas that have filtered in the country during Trump. And you see the degree to which people who are radicalized on the far right are coming out in greater numbers. You know, during the Tree of Life massacre, which happened in October of 2018, when Robert Bowers, who was a Gab user, Gab is a you know, all sort of alt-right social network that has now kind of like fallen into insignificance. 
Bowers attacked a synagogue because he believed that they were helping refugees, right? So he believed in this great replacement conspiracy theory, you know, that suggests that the white population is being attacked from, from uh, you know, by being, uh, by all these uh, non-white people being imported into their country, and it's being done by by elites. In Bauer's case, he believes specifically Jews, and here you have a, a you know a connection between this same sort of oh refugees are terrorists, refugees are dangerous, they're causing a danger to you, and someone taking terroristic action of a completely different kind. It's a way that they're trying to distort reality. Yeah, I think it's a it's a real perversion of reality, and it is extremely dangerous for the future of our country. It, you know, just if you feed somebody a diet of hate culturally, and it comes from the top, uh, it's not surprising to see hate rising on the streets of our cities. Sadly, like it's not restricted to the U.S. You see it in Brazil, India. Now Bolivia, Austria, Croatia, and Ukraine, like no, no, yeah. so it's a global problem that's like going on everywhere, also. Yeah. And so. Um, I you know we can, we I would just say um, what uh, that I hope you know more than anything else, and I really hope that it's a short-lived phenomenon that is uh, a reaction to you know a, a quick reaction in the grand scheme of things to to changes that people felt were happening too fast and that we get back on the track of collaborating um, you know and 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 building bridges between countries and we keep those doors of communication open because for all the criticisms about globalization and all this other stuff right um, from you know like an economic point of view uh, having those lines of communication open are so critical. In, in dealing with climate change and dealing with issues of all kinds like this. I mean, we need to keep those lines of communication open. We need... Uh, because the global right are actually speaking to each other. Like Bolsonaro speaks to Trump and Miller. Yeah. And um, I can't remember the far-right guy in Austria's name, but that guy has been caught with like uh, people who are close to Trump, like at least Bannon. And so you see... You're talking the, about... Uh, Wilder, Wilder. Well, yeah, Wilder. yeah, he's Wilder. Netherlands. Geert Wilders, yes. Yeah. Um, so they're talking. If the right around the globe are like t totally talking together and coordinating, we and the left should do the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, look at the you know it uh, right now. I think that you know the most important thing for people to think about in terms of the Miller stuff is we need just a short-term practical sense this stuff condemned by uh, Republicans, not just Democrats. We, you know, or people um, on the left or the progressive sphere or any, any kind of sphere. Losing this ground, you know, like this is, is what's potentially dangerous because you have this entire party that is now from the top to, you know, filter down into their, you know, to people running for local election. Now, Getting the signal that this stuff is this this stuff is the way it is, and it's a very scary pro uh, prospect. Yeah, and I just think that Republican. This is my opinion, not Michael's. Mine. Um, I don't. See, I think the Republicans like are too far gone. Like it's, I just don't see that realistically happening. So we need to find a way to 
I, I you know, I'm not. I, I don't write off that possibility. I mean, I, I you know. W- the directions of where the parties may go. I mean, it's possible that there may be splits. I can't, you know, one of the one of the the craziest things about the United States is the fact that we only have two parties, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we don't really know what's going to happen to the Republican Party after Trump. I, I, you know, to make it clear what I'm saying, I'm not saying like reach out to your local Republicans and tell them racism is bad. Mm-hmm. That's not what I meant by that. Um, what I was trying to say is like we don't know what is going to happen after Trump, and right now, like. You know, this is probably a good place to kind of, you know, wrap up a little bit. But we know that there are people like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and all these things who are kind of like waiting in the wings, kind of just kind of hoping things get back to the place where they get in power and whatever. And we don't we can't really know what's going to happen after what happens after Trump. I mean, the entire party could collapse theoretically. But I, I think what is what is critical now is to identify just identified that this there is a wing inside the Republican Party that's growing that has you know very 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 strong ambitions of reshaping the direction of this country in terms of what they and call the demographics world. and the world and that this is a, a, you know a real danger to stability in our country um, I mean what, what's happening at the border is is um, unconscionable. Well, like the way it's connected. So Trump helped install uh, like a right wing, uh, I don't know what to call him, some right winger in Guatemala. And now the dreaded, like the Kaibalis are back and it's all interconnected. And you're like, yeah, what well, you're saying that the, po- the policies, you know, our international policies are related to exactly the, yeah no I mean yeah hundred a hundred percent and I, I I gotta I gotta be honest the first thing I thought of you know and I have no idea who wrote it but I you know I like when when Trump said that thing about destroying cultural sites in Iran I, I, I for a moment I was like I was like you know we know Miller's involved in his writing of rhetoric I wondered if Stephen Miller had written that because it is you know just the choice of the of the cultural sites is is you know, it just feels like really in his wheelhouse. And, you know, I have no idea if he wrote it, by the I way. Suspected I suspected Pompeo. Interesting. It could be. I don't, we don't know. But the point is that, you know, I, the, 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 you know, these people have these really extreme beliefs are now front and center in the party and front and center in the country. It's a very scary time. And, you know, I think that people need to stay vigilant, continue to talk about what we know about Stephen Miller now, um, talk about what we know about, you know, about all the different people who have been exposed, like the State Department guy, all this stuff. Talk about this infiltration that we've seen in our government of people who have fascist views and are openly anti-immigrant. I think we need to continue to have that conversation as much as we can, because uh, we can't necessarily trust those sort of liberal safeguards of like newspapers and you know and TV to draw attention to the stuff. You know, it's it's a perpetual fight to get it recognized in the Trump era, where they much rather talk about um, things like impeachment and stuff like that, which is also important for Trump's corruption. Is also important to me. I think it's also important. But the point is that like the people of color are not going to. The threat that is posed to people of color in this country and to, to pose to LGBTQ um, allies and to you know uh, threat is is posed to women um, in the in the 
from extremists, that stuff is not going to get the representation it needs, you know, on cable TV and in mainstream newspapers. And that is why you should support podcasts like us. Please go to historically.substack.com slash subscribe because we try to elevate those voices. That's right. (laughs) Uh, It was lovely talking to you. Yeah, same here. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.